You know, cliches abound, I think, in public life, um, and especially uh, concerning this idea of faith. Have you noticed that? Uh, you can hear the word belief, just, just believe. You just got to believe, or you got to have faith. You know, um, it, it's everywhere. It's a common, here again, we encounter as we come to church on Sunday that, that we actually encounter a, a, a language that is very common. But as well, you must have faith becomes a kind of cliche in the church too, doesn't it? Just believe phrases that are meant to uh, culminate the presentation of the gospel. But you've got to believe. You've got to have faith. We're saved by grace through faith alone. To be sure, it's, it's a core, central teaching of the church that this is the way and the path to salvation. But the question I want to ask this morning is, do we really know what faith is? I mean, is all faith equal? And to our present sermon series, what kind of faith would enable us to participate in heaven meets earth, which is the sum total of the whole journey from Genesis to Revelation? It's, it's what the Bible is all about. This incredible, fantastic journey from Eden back to re- Eden restored. Um, it is that journey which, at the very core, centers on you must have faith. And so there are perhaps no better passages in, in all of the scripture, really, to learn about what at least we understand faith to be and to mean than this chapter in Genesis 15. It becomes the very substantive grounds for Paul's whole argument in the book of Romans, for instance. He will utilize this passage to build his case that we are saved by grace through faith alone. It is also the culminating uh, culmination of our journey in this little mini-series we've been doing on Heaven Meets Earth. For we see that if our hope of all hopes is Heaven Meets Earth, and we've talked about what that actually means and the earthiness of all that, if, our, if, the, if the great problem that has to be overcome, the great mountain that needs to be climbed is our problem with God, that we need to be reconciled with God, and if And if the great power of of how we access the means of grace that God has provided through Jesus Christ is through prayer, that is the power of Christ who is in heaven, his heavenly power, which enables us and gives us power to be transformed into that journey. Well, finally, we find ourselves asking the question, well, then what is faith? I've heard many of you ask me this. I just don't understand, Pastor. How, how do you believe something? How do you have faith? Um, isn't faith really kind of a personal thing? It's not based on objective facts. You can't prove, isn't that the point of faith? You can't prove it. So, so if faith is, is believing something that you have no factual evidence for or that you can't prove, or, or even more, in this pluralistic society, we see that many people have many different faiths, and so therefore we begin to believe, well, faith is just personal, isn't it? It's just a, a personal virtue or value. And I mean, honestly, faith is, is a pretty difficult word. And so we're going to look at that in our chapter here in Genesis, but let's pray before we do. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us where you come and speak to us, and you do so through Acts real time in history, supernatural 
acts of redemption. Giving to us then this record of such acts of redemption that interpret them for us, we come now hoping and praying that you would come and meet us and by the power that is even in heaven, meet earth to us now that you would give us faith. We pray, Father, as we walk through this passage that you would give us faith. For any who here is is still searching and, 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 want, and seeking to know if Christianity is true. Lord, give us in them faith. Come, Lord Jesus, that we might believe in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, you'll notice real quickly, I just want to really quickly kind of review this passage with you because it's really quite powerful and, as I've said, uh, a crucial passage in the book of the Bible. And in, in the very first verse, you'll notice how it begins. It says, and after these things... now. That tells you that a great drama is getting set up, and he wants to make sure, the author wants to make sure that you don't forget what just happened because it's going to frame what's about to happen. And so very briefly, he's talking about chapter 14, of course, duh, but really before that in chapter 12. And if you go back to factor 12, what you discover there is that there was this great uh, moment where God chose Abraham to be the father of of all nations in terms of God's revealing his covenant of grace to the world. Here's the way it's written in chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now stop there because fast forward to Hebrews chapter 11. We know that this land is heaven meet earth. Very unequivocally in Hebrews chapter 11, we are told that as you walk through the redemptive history of God, that what we discover is this great and promised land flowing with milk and honey is none other than the search, the journey to heaven meets earth. They're looking for a heavenly world. And we all are. We've talked about that. We all are. That's what's the heart of all our endeavors, all of our work, all of our willingness to suffer. We're We're looking for heaven meets earth. And this great journey begins here, or continues actually from Adam and Eve, through Abraham. And he goes on to say, and and this, this great journey, well, it's not just about you and your little clan. He says this, he goes, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then he says, the Lord appeared to him and said, to you and your offspring, I will give this land. Now, that comment, this this little passage becomes, again, the substance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does it mean that that this offspring, who is the offspring of Abraham? Is he talking about a genealogy offspring, a biological offspring? By the time we get through the Old Testament, it's very clear he's not. He's not talking about an ethnicity or a set. He's talking about an offspring that is related to this word faith. This very thing where, where we're going to see in chapter 15 where Abraham is, is said to have truly, finally come to rest and believe in this promise. Because fast forward now, that's chapter 12, the great promise of, of this great uh, promise of, of heaven meets earth that would in, embrace not just Abraham's clan but the whole world, something of a great commission-esque moment in Abraham's life. 
We fast forward then to chapter 14, and we discover how God reminds him of this incredible promise to be, and he uses the word, I am your shield. I will protect this promise. I will accomplish this promise. I am your shield. Now hold on to that word, because in the context of chapter 14, it's in the context of a great battle. You see, in 14, we have the Battle of the Kings, as it's known, an ancient international skirmish, four kings east against four kings west. And here we have the clan, if you will, the family of Abraham uh, caught in the middle of this skirmish. His brother Lot is, is captured, and it's Abraham's duty, we know, as the leader of his household to go and with 317 men, they go against the great army of Keladomar, and they defeat that army with God as their shield. God has been journeying with them, protecting his promise as it's going to be revealed through Abraham and his heirs. Significantly, again, God, the shield, has chosen Abraham. But then that gets us to our passage today. We know that there could be many years have passed. This is not like it just happened. But these are episodes, an episodic history of, the, of, of God dealing with Abraham. And in chapter 15 now, we find doubting Abraham. Doubting Abraham. He's doubting such as to be tempted to take matters into his own hands. He says, but Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer, Eliezer of Damascus, which is not his genuine child. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. What he's doing here is now we have uh, understanding seeking faith versus faith seeking understanding. You have a man that, that is like all of us. We all understand the circumstance here where you look at the circumstances of your life or even in that moment of your life and those circumstances just just speak volumes to the fact that, hmm, it ain't happening. I don't see God here. He's not in my life. Our assurance of the promise, even of our salvation, becomes is waning. I, I see you know, temptations within, and I see temptations without. I see a world going to hell in a handbasket. I, I just can't see evidence of this coming of the kingdom of God. Many of you have said. We begin to grow in disillusionment, and from disillusionment we go into despair, and from despair we start to doubt. Doubt a promise that perhaps was once given to us as a youth in a youth group, Promise once given to us as we heard it proclaimed among the, the church of Jesus Christ in years past. But my life and the circumstances of my life, I'm, it just doesn't seem to be going well. I know you've had that kind of circumstance. You know why I know that? Because as you're going to see in a minute that it's actually promised that the way to the promised land is through a wilderness. Eventually Israel would go through a great trial and many great trials. And through those trials and wildernesses, their self-sufficiency would be brought low as their faith increased. But initially, before that's rediscovered, our faith decreases in those wildernesses, don't they? 
You know, I won't tell you the story now, but I can, I can point to, a, to specific moments in my own personal life as a Christian and in the history of this church, having been here for 28 years as a church planner, and I can point to specific moments where I was doubting Abraham with the name Preston in the middle. Days where I was in deep, deep spiritual depression, wondering whether or not God was with me as a child of God and as even your pastor. And I know you know what I'm talking about. So get in touch existentially, if you will, with what Abraham is going through here. He's now getting old in age. He sits around and he's going, I got this great promise. It's going to be through my heir, which was clearly meant to be his own offspring, literally, as a type. And we know that they grew old and it was biologically now impossible for them to have offspring. And so Abraham is doubting the promise of God, but he still wants heaven meets earth by God, doesn't he? So what's he going to do? That's what we all do. We plan B. We take things in our own hands. And so now Abraham evidently had had begun to doubt the promise of God, and he had put together a great plan where he would have an heir by virtue of adoption, basically. Really, it was the use of an extended family member in, the, in, in, in his household. And so now we have God in this passage intervening. That's the history. That's the context. That's the drama that sets up what's about to happen. The drama of God's great works of redemption and and being the great shield of God, of, of Abraham, the provider, by grace, Abraham was chosen for this great mission. It was not of himself. His journey has been evidence of the sufficiency of God to protect him and to care for him. And yet now he's doubting. And so the answer comes to him. And we pick it up now with our passage. And behold, now that's big words. You know, you got the the Heston voice coming through here, you know, and behold, did I do that all right? I don't know if I did. The word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, this false son. Your very own son shall be your heir. And what now proceeds is Abraham's journey back to faith. And in this journey, you're going to see um, how it, in verse 6, it's going to culminate with, with, and Abraham believed the Lord. But how do we get there? Well, I want you to notice three things, three characteristics of what we'll call saving faith as beautifully illustrated in this passage if you're taking notes. First of all, notice that there was understanding related to a promise. In other words, we have this promise clarified, but it always begins, faith always begins with a revealed promise from God that we then understand with our brains. There is a mental capacity to faith, to saving faith, that is. Notice then from God, such as to clarify Abraham's understanding 
God then rebukes him. Your solution, Abraham, in so many words, to take another member of your extended household is not the right way to this promise. And behold, the word of God came to him. This man is not your heir, we've said. And then he gives us the correction. Verse 3, again, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. And in so many words, he says, let's rehearse why you know that I'm God. Here's what he says. I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. It's interesting in Hebrews that there's a passage that that references this, that, that faith is to believe that God is and that God is a rewarder of those who please him, those who believe in him in so many words. But that's the key. He, he, he uses this word shield. Now, why would you use that word if you were God, do you think? Well, that became the banner word for God during these great historical redemptive victories. This word, Megan, in the Hebrew is the word that has been with Abraham through this history of God saving him from these great and tyrannical kings and battles, overwhelmed. By numbers, he took a paltry 317 men and defeated a whole and great kingdom army with this. And under the banner was, God is my shield. And so God, entering back into the consciousness of Abraham, reminds him of the manifestations of God in revealed redemptive history, wherein he has shown himself to be the shield. That is someone you can trust. There it is. Faith begins with understanding a promise, a promise that God is and that you can trust him. But you're saying, I know, I know, you're still saying to me, but but pastor, I don't get it. How do you know? How do you know that God is and how can you trust him? Well, again, it's going to be predicated not on mere speculation, not on some personal idea, but it's going to be predicated upon a real, in-this-world history of a revelation-based history through works and acts in history of redemption. Works that, that Abraham himself had participated in, and even works that preceded him, like Noah's flood, and on it goes, that had come down through oral tradition at this time, were all things that you could imagine he's sort of, it's true. I mean, it's true. But listen, does he have saving faith yet? Not yet. He has got some understanding. He understands it. It's like saying, I I get it, Pastor. I understand what you call the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I understand it. I can assent to it. But he's not yet there. Notice what happens next. This idea of do not fear, Abraham. I am your shield. That is to say, in a rewarder, you can trust me. Don't be afraid. You see, faith is the anecdote to fear. Faith is the anecdote to anxiety. It always is. You know, I mean, I don't know how to do Christian counseling without talking about faith. At some point... We're going to come to a place where it's going to be said, you know, it's true. You're going to have to believe. 
And yet, we're still not there as to how you would get that belief. But it begins with understanding at least what the promise is. And that the source of that promise is none other than God himself, trustworthy as our shield. And so then God reaffirms in verse 4 the promise. It's exactly what he does. He says, let me remind you, just in case you've lost your understanding here, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he more or less repeats what he had told him back in chapter 12, much earlier in his years. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. That's what he told him back in chapter 12. That no, this isn't an offspring of mere genealogical legacy. We're talking about uh, bigger than you can imagine legacy here. Heaven meets earth and those who participate in it. So that's number one. Number one is is promise-based faith or a faith that must involve at least our understanding. But, but, understanding is not going to get you alone to faith. It's not sufficient. Number two, now we see something transitioning where faith is evidenced through desire or the will to believe. And you see, Belief is a kind of thing, now this is very important, we're going to come back to this, but belief is the kind of thing that's not just an intellectual thing. This is where the world's getting it all wrong, and this is where a lot of things I said earlier as to the hurdles of coming to faith get it wrong, that that to believe something is a moral disposition. It's a moral category if you're a philosopher and you know what I'm talking about. This is another category from sensory perception. This is another category from pure reason. This is a category of the will, of, of, of human volition, of, of how it is that we want something, and the key to faith is you've got to want it. Something, and somehow God has, has worked in your life by divine providence, we'll call it, and another big word in theology is effectual calling. That is, when God gives a call with the power of the Holy Spirit backing it up, and he gives us a new nature, we're born again, and I have eyes to see and ears to hear what, even though I understood before, I could not understand, I can only understand now. That's exactly what Isaiah says about faith. That's what Christ will repeat. That's what Paul will repeat in uh, 2 Corinthians that you can actually have eyes to see and ears to hear. That is, you can actually have cognitive understanding, but you still lack the will. And the will is that which must come to you, not through intellectual reasoning, but participation in God in life. Somehow you must, how do I say it? Touch God. Feel God. Know God as one you want to know. And so you have this, what I call, reconciling faith or receiving faith. And and there you have it in verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted or reckoned or reconciled it to him as righteousness. Wow. That is the verse that saves Martin Luther. That is the verse that saves the Apostle Paul. That is the verse 
of all verses that gets you down to the, to the essence of what the gospel is, that we're saved not by our own works, not by our disposition of, of doubting or not doubting, of weak or strong or emotion or non-emotion. You see, we have all sorts of categories where we seem to insert into the idea of faith these sort of things. Well, can you have saving faith, albeit weak? Yeah. Can you have saving faith, albeit no emotion? Yeah. Maybe sometimes that's the greatest of all faith. Lest you feel the difference between faith, as we'll see later, and decisionism, or a kind of emotion-driven decision. Can you have faith while still having questions? Absolutely. There is this kernel, there is this essence of faith that ultimately will give up the authority and the power to judge God and to be his judge. Here Abraham is brought by his circumstances to a place and we're told that he believed the Lord. He believed the Lord. And that it was counted to him as righteousness. So what does that phrase mean? In short, that means that, that it was sufficient. It is sufficient. That, that this receiving it is all that is required. You must understand it and assent to the promise of it and the understanding of what it's promising. But you must also receive it. To sit back dispassionately and understand it and recite it in a catechism class is not saving faith. It's when God has worked in your soul a hunger and a thirst and a desire to give up all other human endeavors as means to gain heaven meets earth and to put your hope and your faith alone in God, who is your shield. A God who's manifested himself in historical time and space over the history of the world as carefully recorded by those who participated in them, and then there is, and we're going to end with this in the sermon, so hold on to them, but there is a gap, and there's the will to jump it. Because the gap is particularly that space where faith, though reasonable, can't be reasoned perfectly. Where faith, though based on facts of history, is not fact-based, ultimately. Because at the heart of true and saving faith is what Jonathan Edwards, the great pastor, preacher of this city, once said, uh, is religious affection, desire. He would go on to describe that that this, this essence must require both light, understanding, but eat, desire. You see in yourself God humbling you with your circumstances, taking you through the wilderness, well, maybe and perhaps that is one of the grace evidences that God is moving you to saving faith. Somehow, somewhere, he's going to bring you to your end that you will finally be exasperated upon the human ingenuity that you are, 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 are pushing forth and making your life heaven meets earth, and you finally say, God, I repent. That is to say, I put to death. That is to say, I give up 
I put myself in your mercy. I want your promise from you. And that's what Abraham did here. Exasperated by his situation, no children, and that's the turning point. It wasn't Abraham saying, God, I'll do better. I'll be better. I promise if if I'll be better, would you give me a child? Oh, I'll work harder. I'll pray longer. No, it's just him saying, I believe. I believe. Paul, again, will, will say now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what is due. That's not faith. That's not grace either. Paul will say in Romans 4, as we've heard, now then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, he says. No. He's talking about Abraham here in chapter 4 of Romans. No, it wasn't according to his flesh, which is another way of saying his own human endeavors. Our forefather. Hear what he's calling him? Our forefather, Paul, an heir, one of those heirs, by faith, is an heir. Our forefather, not according to the flesh, but according to faith. He goes on to make this great argument for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But God doesn't get glory in that kind of salvation. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And on it goes. So we have here this incredible receiving. But that brings me to the third. Faith is not yet done. Doubting has not yet quite been squashed. And so here we have this amazing moment where Abraham believed in the Lord. The result is that God then promises, reasserts the promise. And I am the Lord who brought you out of of Ur, out of the Chaldeans, to give you this land. This is in verse 7. This land that is heaven meets earth to possess. Did you see how he reasoned with, with Abraham? He recited who he was as revealed through a history of historical redemptive acts in time and space, earth. He recites that. I am the God of, 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 reciting these, these, these oral histories that Abraham would have clearly in his mind as to then say, I am the one who brought you out of Ur, the Chaldeans, to, and why? It was in order to give you this promised land, this heaven meets earth. But, but, there's just one thing Abraham lacked, still, in the fullness of saving faith, and that was assurance. That is peace of mind. Now, that's important because you see assurance is that aspect of faith that that then produces how we live our lives. If you are still lacking assurance here, you are going to live a very different kind of life. And you're going to interpret life very differently than if you are experiencing assurance of faith. That's a, that's a predicate of faith. What is the assurance of faith? How would we get that? But notice how it's expressed. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? First thing we do is we're honest. We're honest. We come every week to this meal and and we're honest. And we say, God, I believe, 
Help my unbelief, man. It's been rough this week. Has it been rough for you? Are you relating to this little story? You know, you understand the promises. You've received it. You've embraced it. You will it. You want it. But how can I really be certain it's true? How can I be assured that I'm one of those specific heirs mentioned of Abraham who will receive the promised land by faith? And this is what what God does. He then brings us to the climax. He said, okay, Abraham, here's what we're going to do. And he said, bring me a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old and a ram three years old and a turtle dove and young pigeons. And he brought them out and then he cut them in half and laid them each half over against the other. Now, what is going on, pastor? I mean, this is like, what? Well, here it is. You see, understand that, 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 that Abraham knew exactly what was about to happen. This, is, this was a very common practice in ancient history. The custom in many ancient nations was slaughtering an animal when concluding a contract or a covenant. And after that, they would divide them into two pieces, and the two parties, it was like a shaking hand ceremony. And it was as if you were sealing the ceremony in blood. It's what it was. You know what a seal is, a a signet ring perhaps that would put an imprint. Well, this was an ancient seal wherein we would say, in so many words, both parties walking through the halves would say, here's what's going to happen if I break my vow here. Here's what's going to happen. You can come with your army and destroy my people if it were between two kings. We are going to covenant together right here Blood brothers, whatever you want to call it, but this is backed with blood. There's no sacrifice too great for me to keep my side of the deal. And so that's exactly what, that, that was sort of the sealing moment of a contract where you would know for sure now, and all the peoples would witness it, that man, this is going to stick now within God. But here's the thing. This oath, rich, this, this oath ritual for which Abraham prepared uh, as part of this customary treaty ratification was to basically to invoke the curse of the, of the very contract itself upon ourselves for not doing it. This is explained in verse 10, and it's described as a cutting. To make a covenant was to cut a covenant. Have you ever heard cut a check? I don't know if that comes from the Bible, but that would be a perfect example of what you're saying in so many words. If you say, I'm going to cut a check, is I'm going to give a check to you and I'm going to back it with my blood. If that's really what we were thinking we were saying. To cut a check is to remember the ceremony that promised that I will back it with my life. That word is the word in Hebrew called bereath. That word is the word that defines redemptive history with God all through the Old Testament, into the New. It's the word covenant. The word covenant means to cut. Here we have the cutting ceremony from which that word is derived. And the idea is now that we are entering into a very sacred ritual and moment where the two parties remember what's going on. But, of course, we see what's going to happen here. Fast forward... And we're told, verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. 
And then the Lord said to him, Abraham, know for certain. Have assurance from this day forward. Have assurance. Confirmation, we call it in the church today. Faith awaiting confirmation. Sound familiar, children? Parents to children? Those who may understand the gospel? Those who might even want the gospel, but awaiting that confirmation that they belong personally to that gospel? Therefore, bringing them to the confirmation ritual... And it's a ritual here today that we celebrate that harkens all the way back to this moment in redemptive history with Abraham. For in verse 17, we says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot, a flaming torch passed between the pieces. There was no Abraham. There was no other human. There was only a smoking pot, a flaming presence. Now, if you've been around the block in redemptive history, you know that becomes a theophany of God. That is a presence of God as revealed to humanity by virtue of a great and burning presence. Whether it's in the mountain, whether it's to Moses, whether it's to here. It is a vision. It is a, it is a real in time and space event wherein there is this incredible supernatural event where God fulfills both sides of the covenant. Faith is credited to Abraham as righteousness. Why? How can this be, God? Nothing happens like that in life. Everything's meritorious. How can that be, God? Because I am, says God, later to Abraham, uh, to Moses. I can have mercy on whom I have mercy. I don't work according to your rules in creation. And I've taken upon myself to satisfy not just my side of the deal, but your side of the deal. And therefore, it can be certain. You can be assured. There's not one chain in this link of events that we call saving faith that ultimately then is conditioned upon me. You can be certain for every link of your salvation, everything that must be accomplished for your salvation, I have undertaken it for myself to do. And you say, but is that really true? Is there really historical reason to believe that? Of course the moment in history where the perfect man who had revealed himself to be the very none other but the very one, the word who came into the world and created the world by his own words took upon himself to walk the cutting ceremony, to walk between the slain animal, if you will, to take it upon himself to shed his blood, to satisfy the curse of death that's related to that covenant once given to Abraham for his heirs. This is the table that is God has given to you to say, not that this table saves you, but this table wants you to remember what does save you. And so let me just close with this, this thought. Saving faith is, one, assenting or accepting. It's receiving and it's resting. It's not... Just participating in religious ceremony like baptism or Lord's Supper or sitting in a pew. It's not just affirming Christianity as an ethical system, a moralism, if you will. And it's not decisionism. That is, that, that, that this event that makes me 
just want to give, and, to, and I make a decision ruled out of emotion of some kind of aesthetic moment. Decisions motivated by aesthetics or experience or the power of media or music or, or any kind of an emotionalism is, is not what we're talking about here. Saving faith is truly understanding a promise rooted in the history of God's self-revelation. Receiving that promise because there's the will to desire. You've been brought to a place where you know, I need this, I want this. And this is what I've been looking for all of my life in my search for heaven meets earth. And resting assurance that this promise, at not one link of it, is conditioned on me. And that's proven in history when Christ, who was killed, and if that had stopped right there, we wouldn't know for certain that this was uh, the event. But then he was raised from the dead on the third day, all cursed now being dissolved. It's true. Isn't all religious based on truth that's personal or subjective? I always come to every issue with prejudices, with beliefs, with background. Well, that's all true. There is something true, personal, and subjective about faith. But here's the thing. What we discern is that what is subjective about faith is my will. A will that needs God to change it supernaturally. And for those who have the will changed by God, how do we get that? Ask for it, last week's sermon. They will see it. They will, the reason will back it up, but they will see it. Let me end with this wonderful quote that I put here at the very beginning. Because you're saying right now, I just don't know how to get over that gap. Well, let me just read this quote that I put up there. Christianity in a word, the divinity... Seems probable to me, says Sheldon Van Ugen. But there was a gap between the probable and the proved. Are you there, maybe? How was I to cross it? If I were to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof. I wanted certainty. Well, one day later, there came the second intellectual breakthrough. It was the rather chilling realization that I could not go back. That is... I'd learned about the promise. I wanted it, but how do I get the assurance? How do I get over that gap? And he says, I couldn't go back. For I understood that the position was not as I had previously thought. You see, the mere question of whether I was to accept the Messiah or not. See, that's not the question. Do I go the gap or not? Do I receive Jesus Christ or not? That isn't the full question. And here's what he says. It was a question, actually, of whether I was to accept him or reject him. There is no middle ground. There is no lukewarm. There is no fence. You are either jumping the gap forward to Christ or you're jumping the, back, the, the gap backwards to something else that you're going to put your faith in. And neither of them can be proved if by pure reason or by sensually perception-based fact or evidence-based fact. And there's more historical reason and, and to believe in God, but, but ultimately I've got to want to jump the gap. 
And when I jump the gap, I partake of God, and there is a kind of knowing that requires participation before you can be assured of it. I can't know that I should buy a car until I take it for a test drive, so to speak. This is the man who goes to church. This is the man who begins, or woman who who begins to partake of the means of grace. And there's a self-confirming aspect to that participation. You see, it all comes down at every level. There's not one part of this salvation story that does not rely on God. The promise is a promise on what God has accomplished. The will is based on what God gives you as your will. You must be born again. The assurance is based upon a a, a seal that God himself undertook to make. Praise be to God. We are saved by grace through faith, not of yourself. No man can boast. It's to the pure glory of God.